Welcome to the Patrick Real Estate Show, where we explore the fascinating world of real estate investing with your host, Patrick Switek. Patrick is a dynamic young entrepreneur and an accomplished real estate investor who's passionate about helping others achieve financial freedom. Each week, we sit down with some of the most inspiring individuals in the real estate industry and delve into their personal journeys, lessons learned, and secrets to their success. Let's dive into this week's episode. David Irwin, welcome to the Patrick Real Estate Show, man. I'm excited to welcome you because you are one of the most fascinating architects that I've met personally. You're the architect that has designed some of the craziest things that I've personally seen in the Joshua Tree area. And I know that long-term, there's going to be some crazy cool concepts that you're going to look to, to bring to life around the world as an architect. You've been taught by some of the best architects across the world in Italy and Greece, places where they're known to have some of the best architects. And you just nestled yourself in Joshua Tree to let your just imagination run wild. And I'm just excited to just go into your whole philosophy on building structures. You're currently building one of my structures in Joshua Tree, and that's how we met. And I'm just really excited to share your story and your experience with everybody else that's looking to get into either ground up development or making their property stand out more and thinking about things a lot more deeply than just on the surface level. I think that's what you excel at. And I'm excited to just dive in on that. But without further ado, welcome to the show, David. Right on. Thank you so much, Patrick. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to be here and to talk about what I'm passionate about what I've devoted my life to and uh, and yeah really appreciate the opportunity yeah so where did this where does the story start with David oh wow yeah I guess we could take it from a couple different angles so as I just got out of a meditation retreat that I did down in Mexico I'm really fortunate with my schedule and I can schedule in these chunks of time to reflect to do my own spiritual work and uh, this one I volunteered during it and there's a lot of different lessons I got during it, and I'm still integrating a lot of the teachings. One of them was just this boyish zealousness that's really important. For me, having decided on September 16th, 2011, I'm going to start my own studio. It was maybe like four or five months after graduating from college from architecture school. There's been a lot there's been a huge learning curve, and I think anybody who's started a business or is an entrepreneur or an artist understands what I'm saying. So with that, what happens? The nervous system can really take its toll. So just that was a big thing taking out of this, taking this retreat and taking the time out of my schedule was this awesome kind of like exploration boyishness, right? And I think that complemented with like clear thinking about what I want to create in my life. Those things are really strong. So maybe we'll go on that boyish tip like I'm sure many people, I love building forts and like creating different worlds when I was a boy. And that included playing with cowboys and Indians and playing army with friends, like going around the block and playing in the woods. So it was always about creating these worlds. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, like professionally, right? That very Western thing. What do you want to do when you grow up? I didn't know, but I knew that I loved drawing. And I started getting into doing graffiti with friends in high school. So we'd go out and all this different stuff. And, and there was like an excitement about it. There's an excitement about going to a property that's not yours and like creating a piece on it. And what's really interesting is several of my friends, that's exactly what they were doing. And for me, I always felt more safe inside of my sketchbook like inside of my own little world. Like I'd go out with them, but I wouldn't necessarily be writing on these different buildings and stuff. Fast forward about two years from then, and then I find myself in architecture school at Pratt in Brooklyn. It was close. My uncle lived in Brooklyn. My uncle Tim was my first mentor. So I wanted to live in Brooklyn. Uncle Tim, he went to art school. I want to go to art school. And architecture to me, it's, there was like something noble about it. I was like, that's cool. And when I was like 14, just to zip back like three or four years, when I was like 14, I'd go to Barnes and Nobles by myself. I'd get dropped off 
and I would just read books there. And one of the things I came upon was a compilation of Leonardo da Vinci's diaries and different entries. And I would read some of them. And I didn't necessarily understand what he was talking about in a lot of them, but there was something behind the words that was really powerful. And it was, there was just, I, I got a touch of it. And then when I went to architecture school, I didn't know anything about anything, man, but I totally fell in love. And inside of that, I'd have friends that were still going out and writing and I, They'd be like, oh, can we borrow like caps, which are like the tops for the spray cans and stuff? Cause they like, there's fat ones and skinny ones and this kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, sure. Give them caps. And then I'm like, I'm not going out with you though. I got to design some stuff. Cause on Monday, if I'm in jail, like I'm not going to go to design class and I got to go to design class because this is so much fun. So it became a compass for me, man, of, of being able to create work. And there was a magic that happened just talking about that kind of Leonardo da Vinci reading the diaries, just feeling something. There was a magic that happened. So like, I didn't know anything from anything and I'm like presenting work and there's a, pro there's a professor and a couple of his colleagues there and the students behind them. And it's a pinup, very common in architecture school. And I'm presenting my work and there's a bunch of things I didn't say yet, right? And then one of the critics was like, okay, so what you're telling me is, and then they read into all the stuff that I didn't even say about the project. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool, right? Because they're like reading my mind of like what I'm implying here and all these different things. So I saw, I saw the magic behind it. You can maybe say the divinity behind the practice. And then what I'll also say, maybe this can segue into another chunk we can talk about, because I know you're an investor and for you, financial freedom is very important. Since a boy, I was an entrepreneur. So I remember going to school. And I made like 50 bucks when I was in like third grade or something like that. And my mom was so beside herself. She's like, what did you do? What did you like? What, like, where did you get this money? And I was like, oh, I, I grew up in the, I grew up in the nineties. So there were pogs and slammers were big. There were like these little cardboard discs mm -hmm. with these metal things. Yeah. I was like, oh mom, like a bunch of the pogs and slammers that I got, that dad got me, I sold them. And people, instead of using their snack money for chips, they bought these. And she was like, what the hell do I have on my hands? <laughs> so there's always been that entrepreneurial bit that's run through me. And I find that with what I'm able to do now and like the project we're working on together, Patrick, it gives me the opportunity to bring those two things together and to just, and to really try and do that as purely as possible. And as straightforward and you can say pragmatically as possible. So yeah, it's really fun. Those are really the two I would say the two forces early on from childhood that have influenced me the most. That is amazing, man. And I didn't even know that about you. So that's really interesting. I'm hearing this for the first time as well. Every time that I talk to you, I feel like I'm, I just get, I just peel a layer of the David Irwin onion and <laughs> just get a little closer to the center, but you're just mysterious enough for you. You still have certain things. You have a lot of stories, man. I love it, dude. I'm curious, after this realization, this boyish side of you really pursuing architecture, what, what happens from there? You're in architectural school. You Let's say you graduate architectural school. What's next? Yeah. So I can remember sitting with, with a classmate, and we were at a party. It was like a dinner party at a friend's place. We were going to graduate in about a week and a half. And... Her name is Sam Mink, really talented architect. We were sitting there and I remember I was at our friend Pete Baldwin's house and someone came up to us and they're talking to us. Oh, what do you guys tell us about you guys? And we were like, oh yeah, we're graduating in like a week and a half, two weeks. And they're like, oh, what are your plans after graduation? And we both had the same sentiment and it was, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> now in the background, I knew I had a lot of irons in the fire. It's like I had applied to Harvard GSD. I applied to Yale for grad school. I was like working on a couple different conversations with professors about different firms to work at. But truly, I didn't know. It was like the first time in my, since I guess discovering like this architecture thing and really finding myself as much as you can find yourself at 17, 18, 19, 20 as an artist, finding myself in that way is the first time that it was like really unclear. <laughs> so anyway, I, we both shared with this person, like, I don't know. And it felt really strong, this kind of unknowingness. Small departure, I'm going to stay on this question. But if you look at the tarot, 
So the tarot, it's the playing card deck that you may be seen in movies and things like that, or maybe somebody listening is a practitioner. If you look at the tarot of the, there's 22 face cards, like King, Queen, Jack. They're not called King, Queen, Jack, but you can think of it that way. There's different archetypes. And I know we, we got into this a little bit at dinner, Patrick. There's an archetype called the fool. And the fool is being followed by a dog in the scene. This is from the Tower of Marseille, which is arguably the deck to work with if you're going to work with one. And it's said that the fool precedes the, the higher cards. So the cards like the emperor, say, or the empress, you have to have that fool kind of mentality. So without even knowing it, that's where I was. And I wound up getting my first job at Pfeiffer Partners, which is an architecture firm in New York City. A fantastic professor of mine, one of my favorites, Michael Cranfield. He was able to put in a good word and get me an interview. And I went there and showed him my portfolio and got a job there. Working there was definitely a blessing for me. There's a lot of things I saw that didn't jive with my own spirit in working in, a, in an office, working, say, under people. I realized that, that was going to be something shorter than I thought that it was going to be as far as the duration of time. While I was working for that firm, I got a phone call from a friend. I remember it was a weekend. I just went to Ikea. I was holding a big box with a big red lamp that I got from Ikea to put in the apartment in Brooklyn. And my friend says, hey, man, what are you doing on Monday? And I was like, I'm going to work, man. Like I just got this office job and <laughs> I'm going to work. What are you doing on Monday? <laughs> and in the back of my head, I was like, I don't think you're working yet. What are you doing on Monday? And he's like, do you want to come work for Lebius Woods? And I was like, what? And he's yeah, man, Anthony Titus, who was a professor of his, invited him. Hey, Lebius needs some help. And you have another friend. And I was that other friend who was reaching out to. And I was like, dude, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm there. Tell me. And I, li I lived with him. So he's, he's, I'll see you when you get back to the apartment. I'll tell you the details. I was like, all right, cool. David, so, can and, I ask who that is for the people? Yeah, sure. I don't know. Yeah, sure. Lebius Woods is a, he's an architect. He passed away in October of 2012. I believe he was born in, I want to say like 1948. He's prolific. He's truly prolific. He's one of the most important architects, certainly to have lived in the 20th century. His drawings are in San Francisco MoMA Museum of Modern Art, as well as many others around the world, the MAC in Austria. So these important, these important museums. He was also a, an amazing teacher. He taught at Cooper Union, which is an art school that also has architecture and engineering in New York City. He taught there for, I believe, over a couple decades. And he taught under John Heddock. John Heddock was the head of the architecture program at Cooper Union in the 80s one of the most important educators of the 20th century, John Heddock, for sure, with the way he looks at architecture. And I think the sentiment was shared with Lebius, and I'll just share, this is from John Heddock, and it's, if it has a soul, it's architecture. If it doesn't, it's a building. And that's from John Heddock. And what he means by that, I believe, is that there's an opportunity. Are you gonna put a soul in this building? If not, that's okay. That's totally cool. But it's not architecture then, which I think is really fascinating. And that's certainly what I felt about Lebius with his, with his drawings and his works. So all of that is to, uh, can you please remind me of the question, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> so you had this opportunity with your roommate, um, yes. who's going to tell you to work for this basically high level architect that you resonated with. So, yeah, man, I was beside myself. Like I was looking at his books when I was in college and just getting so much inspiration from his writing. So beautiful. So, anyway, so I got a chance to work with him as, and it was very humble work, man. And it was beautiful. I was dusting books. I was like helping. He was going to paint all the walls in his studio and he had thousands and thousands of books. Like there were, when you look at a wall, there was more book you would see than raw wall. There was so many books, lifetime of books. And uh, I remember one book I pulled off the wall. I don't know if there's any science fiction fans on here, but Arthur C. Clarke, one of the most prolific, there was a signed Arthur C. Clarke book that Lebius had done the cover for, mm -hmm. which I've subsequently bought, not the signed version, but I was like, wow, he's in that world too. That's so cool. And he's done, he's done work for different, different films films that have even taken his work and commandeered it and he's been able to win win in court and continue on doing as he does with the proper 
the proper conversations with him prior to things happening. So anyway, I was thoroughly shook in the best of ways in working for him. And there's, I could talk about that, you know, for a long time, but what I'll say is there was one evening when we were done with work and we were sitting in a studio and we're listening to jazz and we're having a drink and smoking cigarettes and just having great conversation. And he, on his iTunes, the next song came on. And the song was a conversation between him and an architect in Culver City named Tom Main. And he goes, oh man, I've been meaning to transcribe that. I've been meaning to type that out. And then he go, you know, goes back into the conversation we're talking. And at the time I had a blog where I would interview people that I found interesting. And I would interview them with a tape recorder and then I would type everything out. And I knew at the time, I think it was like something like, maybe five hours for every like hour of audio. It would take me to type it out. I forget what the math was, but I think AI would have been really nice back then. (laughs) Yeah, it totally would. It would have. And I'll share a bit about that. So I said to him, I said, Hey, I have this blog and like, I type stuff out and I can do that for you. And he's like, you do that. I was in my head. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is an amazing opportunity. I was like, yeah, totally. So that's what I wound up doing. And he uploaded it to his blog. And what I found is because I had to do it manually, and it was a really important conversation about creating spaces, creating cities, which by the way, Tom Main right now, he's headed with a large section of doing the line, which is in Saudi Arabia, a pretty large project, like one of the largest there is, or if not the largest project happening right I've now. I've seen that before. The big line in the middle of the desert where you just have all these different different sectors of that architecture. Yeah. yeah and I, I haven't spoken to him to see like what parts of it he's in charge of but my understanding is there's maybe a dozen architects working on it but from what i've seen on the internet he's in charge of a substantial part of it the thing is just going back to the leonardo da vinci bit it's like i was in the presence of the same feeling when i was listening to this conversation with these two guys and so i wanted to catch every single inflection if one of them was really pondering something i really wanted to capture that if only it showed up as a comma or a long dash or something i really wanted to capture the essence of what I was feeling and to share that with other people through Levius's blog. So it took me a while to do it, but then I put it forward and I was so happy with it. And, and Levius took it and did some editing and put it on his blog. That's amazing. So to be able to like have that experience early in my career was so formative because I realized that it's important to be idealistic. It's important to have It's important to do your best to muster the courage to create the life that you want to have. And I think that's really important to, to maintain, especially when times get tough. And I saw that in him and especially as a human being that was so true to his word and just, you can just feel the goodness in him. It was such a contrast to my, my early experience in, in, I'll say other ways of seeing the industry, so to speak where people were jumping on a really high horse, but maybe they weren't necessarily making work that was that, you didn't really feel it was that impactful, which I would just look at that and observe and go, interesting. Wow, you're, you're talking really mean right now. And I don't really see what's behind it though. I don't necessarily see what there is to learn, but at the end of the day, there's something to learn from everybody, but it just, it gave me a really high bar to see how you can roll as a human being, as a man, as a person, as an architect, as a person who really cares about putting work into the world that can really help elevate people in areas that they can't even necessarily see or measure. Yeah. Wow. So you got this amazing experience with the amazing mentor, which is like a recipe for some of the best creators of all time to have somebody that they can be under as an apprentice, almost watching their steps and trying to stand on the shoulders of giants. Curious, after after that experience, how did you even end up in Joshua Tree out of all places from Brooklyn to Joshua Tree? That's what happened there. Yeah, I went to, I guess, keeping in track with what we were talking about when we opened, I went to a meditation retreat, a 10-day meditation retreat in the countryside in France. I did that. I was meditating in the retreat while I turned 30. So I did it when I was 29 going into 30. The reason I was going to France was like, all right, I'm turning 30. I want to create this experience for myself. I want to create this ritual for myself. 
I've never meditated for more than 15 minutes. I'm going to be asked to meditate hours and hours during the day. Let me just give this a shot. So that was in my head. And what was also in my head was I wanted to meet, I wanted to meet another elder artist, another elder, elder man. And his name is Alejandro Jodorowsky. Who's Alejandro Jodorowsky? He's a filmmaker that made probably the most famous film that nobody has ever seen. His rendition of Dune, which now a lot of people know about Dune, the book by Frank Herbert, there's the film that's out now with Timothy Chalamet and I think Jason Momoa is in there. Dune was a screenplay. So it was a book. It wasn't a movie yet. And Alejandro Jodorowsky assembled this team. He assembled a team of visual, visual effects people, like some of the best in the industry. I think this guy's name is Dan O'Bannon. He had Salvador Dali, Orson Welles, Mick Jagger. He had all these different people that were ready to <laughs> rock and they were ready creating work and they're creating costumes for them. And the John Gerard, AKA Mobius, he was creating work for it. He had this crazy sphere of this influential people that are just create, okay, Dune, Dune, this is going to be big. This is going to be big. And this is pre-Star Wars, by the way, pre-Star wow. Wars, pre-Alien, pre any of those films. The short story is he goes to Hollywood. People want to change it. He's, we're not changing it. We're keeping it exactly as it is. And it never gets made. The thing is, it went on to influence all of the different sci-fi from the early 70s until now. It's super prolific. There's documentaries about it online. Okay, wow. I wanted to meet this guy in person. And my understanding was that he was still giving tarot readings every Wednesday at this little cafe in Paris. And I was getting really into tarot at this point, And I designed a concept for a master plan for a retreat center in California based on, based on the tarot. And just like I was talking about before, there's 22 major face cards. And I designed 22 versions of it based on each card. So I really thought about each card and I created a whole presentation and, and presented it. So I wanted to meet him and I wanted to talk about the tarot. I wanted to talk about putting it into the architecture world and things like this. So anyway, I book a flight to go to Paris. I go there, do the meditation retreat and wind up finding where he lives. And I left a drawing for him. Didn't meet him in person, but spoke to his wife, which was great. But I did that retreat. And what I got out of that was manifold. There were many things I got out of it. And one of them was to move to someplace that's rural. I didn't feel like living in, at the time I was living in San Francisco, I didn't want to live in the city anymore. And I didn't know why it was just something deep inside of me that I just, I felt moving to a rural place would make sense. And I did one Google search and I looked up Big Sur, which is a beautiful place that I've been to that I love. And Joshua Tree, which is a beautiful place I'd been to that I love. And I was like, you know what? It seems like an acre of land in Joshua Tree is way more obtainable. Let me just go for the desert. So that's what I did. And I took trips down in my van. I would drive down from the Bay Area for a weekend, come back up. And I did that maybe six, seven weekends in a row. No, maybe four or five in a row. And then eventually one time I came down and just didn't leave. And wow. at that time in my head, I also made up that to create work in the world, in the corporeal, in the physical world, right? You got to pay for Know, whether you own a place or rent or you got to pay money for food as well. So I was like, you know what? I bet if I get into real estate, if I own my work, that is going to scratch that itch. Plus creatively, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing rather than just scratching this itch. Why don't I educate myself about that so I can have both of them? And at that time, that's when I realized, well, I know somebody in San Francisco who is a very successful real estate developer and investor and i'm actually quite close with him like let me ask him some questions thankfully i was at a point in my life where i was interested in asking questions and gaining the knowledge versus there was a point in time where my mind was i need an investor i need an investor i need somebody to invest in me but what i realized is like the real way to do it is you invest in yourself with the knowledge and if you could put yourself before somebody that has that knowledge and it's coming from a heart-centered place inside of you, you're going to soak that up like a sponge, and then you can deploy it in the world. So that's what I did. And then so coming out here, it was, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create, create works, 
And then I'm also, I'm going to be, I'm going to be buying, buying places as well. So that's what happened. I moved out here in my van in 2019, January, and, and just, just went at it. That is awesome. And so you built, let's, so you got into it at the time when you got into real estate investing, was short-term rentals a big thing in Joshua Tree at the time or not really? It was like, you felt the wave coming. Like mm. I, I came and I felt. What year? This is 2000 and I started coming in late 2018. So October, November, 2018, or actually even before that, no. October, September, September, actually, September, 2018. Just going back to, because your question was, how did I get from Brooklyn to mm -hmm. the desert? When I was in Brooklyn, I was there from 2006 to 2015. From 2006 to 2011, when I was in architecture school, something was happening in Bushwick. Like me and my friends got an apartment. We're like, all right, well, this is just, this is off the beaten path. We're not next to school. This is rad. There's warehouse parties like really close. Let's just live here. And little businesses were popping up. What I didn't know is a lot of the feeling I felt creatively. There was also a cohort of people investing in that area. A lot of, a lot of Hasidic, a, a lot of people in the Hasidic Jewish community, right in Williamsburg, were investing in Bushwick. And I, there was something about the energy creatively that just, that drew that in. And I could start, I, and I would meet people that were making moves with real estate. Like I, like there were people I'd meet at parties, like, oh, this is a dope warehouse party. Oh yeah, I'm investing in this area. And I'm like, all right, whatever, man, cool. Like this band, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. It wasn't even on my radar, but I felt the energy. So when I came to the desert, there was a similar energy. And I just, I recognized it. I knew creatively that there was such potency here. And I could also feel that there was things changing hands as well. Like I could feel that and I've got some visions. So I really trust myself with being able to take, to take ownership of some places and to do something good with them. But yeah, man. So I, I threw my hat in the ring, so to speak, and started learning about real estate and uh, yeah. That's, so you're that's a real estate investor and an architect and you, you own your own architectural business too, right? So that's Terra projects. So that's, if you guys want to check out some of the work that David Irwin's doing. So Terra Projects is the way to do that. With that being said, curious how, what's your, what's currently the projects you're working on without giving too much away about your patrons? What's, what are the projects you're working on and what kind of vision do you have for these projects? What kind of approach do you take to these projects that are short-term rentals that have a little bit more depth to them than normal projects? Yeah, I would say that what I would say is that there's like a, if I could just zoom out, just, I understand what you're saying about short-term rentals, but if I could just zoom out a little bit, the approach that I think can really serve that part of me, that really, that curious part of me, you can say that boyish part of me, that part of me that recognizes stuff when Leonardo da Vinci is writing quotes and conversations with Levius, like these, just these beautifully, these beautiful human beings making work. Those two parts of me, I really like to develop stories. I really like to look at the oldest stories. I can find the thread in them and pull them into the contemporary context. Why? I would like to just say that there's a great article in The Atlantic that everybody, I invite you to check out. It was written in September of 2019, so before the pandemic, by Derek Thompson. And it's called Why Cities Are Shrinking. I believe it's Why Cities Are Shrinking. And what he talks about is that Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago were actually shrinking in population. When I read this, I had already moved to the desert, right? Because I moved January of 2019. And it started to quantify what I had felt. Because I felt at the time of the city's over. And then I saw, whoa, a lot of other people are leaving these cities too. And the short of it is I think people are yearning for like whole food, whole conversation, a farmer's market, being able to make a fire in your backyard. It's uh, the word that comes to me is like, like facsimile, right? So it's like in the eighties or whenever they came up with fax machines, it's called a fax, a facsimile. Why is it a facsimile? Cause it's a copy. So people are like, I'm done with these copies. I'm done with in large regard, I believe just digitally interfacing and stuff like that. Give me some, give me something tangible. 
that's something that's maybe happening on a, like a subconscious level. And it's really coming out in people's nervous systems. And that, that's something I just, it really resonates with me. He didn't talk about that in the article, by the way. He was just talking about the numbers of people migrating and stuff like that. But that's really what I started to ponder and think about. So that brings us back to your question. I think that there's an opportunity right now to create work that points to very old stories that have lasted thousands of years. And it could be super simple. Like fairy stories talk about this stuff, like courage and perseverance and perhaps independence, perhaps family, perhaps community. If we can embed these different notions inside of the work itself, it's hard to quantify, but I wager that for me, it feels good doing that. And that's all that I need. And then if at the end of the day, that helps make these things happen, rock on. Like, that's really great. That's something really great that came out of it. But by and large, it's just really fun for me, like looking at these different stories and to think about how they're existing in my own world of being an entrepreneur, being an artist, doing these different transactions with deals and stuff. And there's certain risk tolerances. So there's, and then if you don't have mentors, it can get really scary. So there's all the feelings come up for me in my day-to-day -day life. And I think it's fitting that, because I'm not the only one that this has happened to. There's so many people that they have the same, they have the same kind of cycles of feelings and stuff like that. Um, and then one more bit I'll say on that, I, it was an open thread. So yeah, when I came to Joshua Tree, I felt that there was a wave that was forming and that there was a surfboard laying in front of me and I could get on it or not. And it felt so exciting. I was just like, absolutely. So I got on the surfboard and there was this building momentum of what's going on as I was just outlining, I believe at a deep level and people, more and more people started moving out here and then different opportunities began to arise with that with seeing that there was a migration of people, more of a desire to be at the national parks. Naturally, people saw an opportunity of they need housing and it's gonna be short term and great. If I use my knowledge, skills to create the housing and create an experience for them, people will pay me money and then I can feed myself, I can put money aside for future generations, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where you started to see a lot of things changing hands. That is amazing. And David, for people that already don't know the difference between you and any old ordinary architect, can you maybe give some insight how your process is very different? Because I know specifically when I started working with you, normal architects are very, when I say normal, most architects are, hey, here's this concept. It does everything that it needs to do. Let's just plot it down and get over it. And just, it's just pretty much a different process than when we go through with you, which is a lot longer of a process where we were signed up for it. Like you set the expectation from the day that we start that you're also an artist and you're not just an architect, you're an artist architect that embraces that emotion in these spaces and in the design. And you have a very regiment structure to how you approach design. Can you maybe explain that structure and the approach that you take when you develop one of these projects? Yeah, sure. So one of the words you said about five minutes ago was the, the word patron. A patron in, let's say like 15th century Italy or 14th century when you had the Renaissance happening, that word, if you look at like the translation of it, like what, or the definition, it means a supporter of the arts. And for me, I want to work alongside people. I don't want to work just, okay, this is a client. They fill X, Y, Z role. For me, the word patron is much stronger because what it means is I've already had conversations with them and I see that we're both moving in the same direction. And I've had times where I've worked with people where we're not necessarily moving in the same direction and the work suffers. And the, and the relationship and these sorts our, of things. We're aligned. Just What'd to you be say? clear. We're aligned, oh, yeah, David, yeah. just to be clear. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So like with that, with, it was a beautiful lesson. I needed to get that lesson. When I really, when that lesson really landed with me that it's like, you you need to choose who you work with. There, there are beautiful opportunities that come in. And as you, as I think before we started recording, you were, you were talking about the word decide, like you're making some big decisions in your life. And decision in Latin is made up of two words, meaning to cut off. So you're eliminating other things. So it's, I made the decision that like, when I create works, it's going to be with a patron. So that's the first thing. 
So that kind of sets the stage. And what's interesting is like the processes that I use aside from maybe just my own style, my own approach, they're pretty standard in the industry that I've been exposed to. Mm. And that's that there's five stages of design. The beginning stages sometimes are skipped, but I think they're really important. The first is the initial design phase. The next is a schematic. Then the design development, construction documents, permitting, things going out for bid. And then you have, it's basically oversight of the design on site while things are being built. So those are the five phases. And it's very typical. Now, I suppose what's atypical is really spending a lot of time in the initial design phase. And for me, what that does is it really, it makes it exciting for me. And I find that if I'm excited by a project, it really permeates and like moves through it. If I'm excited from a deep place about it. So yeah, so like working with, working on the project that we're working on right now in Joshua Tree, it was really important for me to, yeah, to get to a good part with that before moving on. But yeah, so I set the timelines and then went ahead and went at it. Yeah. And I love that you do spend a lot of time in being very intentional with your design. Every decision you make about a space is so intentionally laid out. And I remember you told me in the beginning that when you were, when we were picking architects and you came up to us and you told us that you sit and watch the sunset go down to see how it hits the, something along the lines of the different elements in the house and how that impacts the whole experience of somebody coming in there. And you mentioned something along the lines of you want the drunk intellect, right? I, I don't know exactly if you remember <laughs> what that analogy is, but you want somebody, can you explain that again? Because sure. I forgot exactly how it was. Yeah. If you feel inclined, you could go on to anybody listening. You could go on to, you can go onto my website. It's terraprojects.org.org and it's projects with an S. And in the about section at the bottom, it's got nine points about my approach. It's a current manifesto. They change over the years, but it's my current one. And there's nine different points. In there, I write that I'm interested in creating spaces that the intellectual is rewarded. So what does that mean? It means that if you go into a space, you don't have to be well-read. It should resonate with you. And if you get curious and maybe you know a little bit about some different stories, you can start to go, oh man, that's why that's like this. And that's like, that. oh, that's really cool. So it rewards you. And then what I also say is it really rewards the drunk intellectual. <laughs> so if you've got, maybe you've read a couple stories and you're like, oh man, and then you have a couple drinks with friends and then you're, and then it's just, it's really fun because now the space is basically speaking back to you. And one more thing I'd like to say just about the nine points I have in there and any thoughts about my thoughts about architecture is that it needs to work. The space needs to work. The space needs to work on a, on a functional level. And it also needs to work on just like a feeling level. And then all the other stuff is just bonus. But it's really yeah. fun thinking about that bonus stuff because as I live, and as I work, I learn and I can apply that. So the functional part of it and the permitting and all that, that's all getting really well-rounded. So it's really fun to explore this other space. That's a gift to people. And I like to think that they're going to feel that inside of these spaces, or at least there's an invitation to feel it. Maybe if they're in the right headspace. Yeah, hundred percent. And I love that. I, the drunk intellect. <laughs> having a few drinks and stumbling upon something that you didn't think you're going to stumble upon. And I love that, that deep level of thinking when it comes to making experiences in spaces, it's not just from a functional level, as you mentioned, I think what really sets you apart, David, really is your ability to think very deeply and very intentionally about how you create spaces. And I'll be honest, man, in the beginning, I was hesitant. I was like, dude, I don't know if this guy's just like, a really good sales guy or just actually like an in intellect art guy. So we're just like, let's just roll the dice, man. Let's just, let's give him a shot. I like his approach and I'm so glad I did, man. I, I love working on this project with you. It's, it seems like we're aligned. We're getting to know each other better, but also the space better that we're going to provide yeah. for future 
guests moving forward. Yeah. What one one thing that there there are some things that you've mentioned that are small little thing little things you can do with spaces to create mm. and invoke feeling. Can you talk about those things you can do to invoke sure. feeling? In yeah, sure. Yeah, there's a video on I think it's on my my company YouTube channel or the studio YouTube channel like Terror Projects and. I did a talk at a spiritual center maybe three years ago, and I talk about this. So it's just on YouTube. If you type in Terra Projects, you could probably find the video. There's a couple things, man, because we all live in spaces, right? Whether you live in a van or you live in a beautiful house or you're renting a space or you're renting a room or whatever your situation, there's always an opportunity to make some minor adjustments and you could bring life into the space. Just starting with a space that is around me here. For those of you who can't see the video, so I'm in, a, I'm in a dark space. The walls appear to be black, but they're actually not. It's a deep brown. So what happens? What happens is when the sunlight hits it at different times of day, so say if, you, if sunlight catches it during golden hours, so it's usually about like 35 minutes before the sun goes down, you see the really deep, warm black. It look the warm brown in the walls and stuff like that. And then right now, it looks like it's all black, but it's not truly black. So it's using this deep brown within a space. Why though? Okay, I get it. There's some cool colors. It looks brown, but why? The thing is, what it does is it starts to like highlight artwork. It highlights people's complexion on their skin. If you're having a dinner with somebody, it's about the food on the plate. It's about the board game you guys are playing. I put all the lights on dimmers. I don't know if you, yeah, I can't really see that. So what the darkened space does is it lets the, it literally lets like the light be the light. So, cause lights bouncing off of people's skins, no matter what the complexion, the food, the clothing. So it's about the time with this other person in the space. And it becomes much more focused about that and less about a blown out space. That's also vying for your attention and straining your eyes. So that's one thing. Just consider, hey, maybe make a darker space. The second thing is plants. Like plants are really important in a space too, natural plants. To be able to be taught by the plants of like when they want water, when they don't want water, how much sunlight. It's really beautiful. It's really beautiful and it's very soul soothing and you can have them inside of your space. When I lived in my van, I had, I had two plants that I would keep in the front window. And I would water them and they would, of course, take in the sunlight through the window. And when I was driving, I'd put, put them down low. But it was really nice to have them in the space. It's definitely like a stop before having a pet. And it definitely brings energy into the space. And it brings, it's like a whole knowledge base. You can learn from them. And they're just really beautiful and energizing. And I suppose from a scientific level, they're giving off what you breathe in and you're breathing out, mm -hmm. they breathe in. So it's this beautiful symbiotic relationship that makes your health better. And what I'd also say is start with zero, start with a completely empty space. And if you're designing, say you're designing a ground up building, start with it. And this is also one of those nine points that I'm currently like just thinking about when I design, start with it completely dark, like a seed with no sunlight, and then slowly start to make punctures in it, start to make openings in it. Maybe you start to, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put something nice up for the windows and okay, I'm going to, maybe I'll buy a sofa next week. Let me look at some, it's like start bit by bit and then it's going to add up and it's going to be really, it's going to be a space that you thought through that you designed and it's going to feel really good. So that would be a second word or maybe that's third. So yeah, those are some different things to, to think about within your own space or a space that you're creating to start to, to bring life into it that that feels really good while you're in it. That's awesome. And yeah, plants are basically life. So <laughs> and yeah. that's quite literally bringing life True. into it. So interesting enough, you have this whole approach to make feelings happen in spaces and really go the step above everybody else. Now, a question a lot of people are probably asking is, doesn't this get really expensive? <laughs> Doesn't all these little touches and do you need to have all gold materials to really make a place stand out? Or can you d design that through functional materials? Yeah. Uh, there's a great argument. What was the last bit? I said cheaper materials, not functional materials. There's a great architect alive making work today by the name of Stephen Hall, H-O-L-L. -L. And... What he talks about is 
it's not about the size of the space. It's not about the size of the space. It's not at all. Some of the best works of architecture that are still around today are actually quite small. For instance, there's a space by Carlos Scarpa. He did a cemetery. I believe it's the Brion Cemetery in Italy. And you go into the space and it's, it's super profound. If you were to add up all the spaces, it's on maybe an acre of land. And there's maybe, I don't know, a thousand square foot or 1500 square foot, some of it outdoor, some of it indoor. There's not much space, but it is so impactful. So that's the first thing. It doesn't have to do, the power of a space has nothing to do with the size of it. It actually, it can be quite small. Go to the Hollyhock House in Los Angeles. I've never even been inside, but just outside, I look at it and my mind is completely blown. It's probably no more than a 1500 or 2500 max square foot space. So that's the first thing. Now, looking at materials, I do think there's a certain point of diminishing returns with materials. So for instance, for anybody who's building out there, when you do a space, you've got a choice. If you rip it down to the studs, do you build it up with half inch drywall or five eighths? Simple thought. My thing is five eighths, 100% five eighths. Why though? It costs more money. It's a simple thing. It's just drywall, but why? Why not half inch? The thing is this, especially in the desert, sound is so important. Whether we know it or not, sound is so important. And five-eighths makes a little bit extra barrier between the outside and you. And I don't know about sound, the actual traits. I don't know how to measure them trait-wise. But what I do know is from a fire standpoint, drywall itself has a fire rating. Like it's a helpful component to help stop fire from spreading. So there are quantifiable things inside of that drywall. So simple things like that are really important. And I'm gonna get I'm gonna get back to the heart of it, I promise. Just bear with me for a sec. When I worked at Rockwell Group, which is an architecture studio in downtown Manhattan in, in Union Square, we were designing hotels all over the world, restaurants all over the world. There was an interior designer I remember I was working with, and I was like, What are you doing today? She said, Oh, I'm looking at the pack of I'm looking at the wool for the carpet and the thickness and the and how dense the threads are. I was like, What? She's, yeah, like I'm looking at the depth of the wool, the underlayment, and then also how, like how dense the threads are. And I was like, that's fascinating. She's like, yeah, have you ever stepped foot in the four seasons? I was like, yeah. She's like, what does it feel like? I was like, interesting. I was like, let me get back to you. On my lunch break, I went to some really nice hotel in Manhattan and walked around the lobby, got coffee, came back. And I was like, whoa, it feels so nice under your feet. She's like, I know it does because I've thought about that. And that's what, that's what certain spaces do to you. There's very small details that can really elevate the quality. You don't even know what's going on. You're just enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what does that all mean? It means that like here at Sonterholm, the bathroom has underlayment for roofing has all the walls in there. That's a very cheap material. It's number 30 organic felt building paper. Typically you put that, you put the sheathing on a building and then you'll put this building paper on top and then you put your final whether it be like stucco or like board or concrete board or whatever you want to do on the outside but this goes right on top of the sheathing and it's used as a construction material and when i was redoing the bathroom i remember thinking like hmm, interesting i need something that sheds water and then i came upon this so it sheds water it's waterproof like it meets current code and I haven't seen a space with that before, but to me, it made sense. And it's, it's the most inexpensive waterproof water paper you're going to find because it's sold at Home Depot. And I think that's a big hack. And that's also another one of those nine points. It's use materials in unexpected ways. And there's a twofold benefit to that. There's the first that you're pointing to, Patrick, of having a space that feels or no, the first is that if there's a cost savings, period. The second is that there's a space that there's something different about it. It's oh, interesting. I haven't seen that used in that way. And there's that, there's something about that I find really interesting and compelling. If you don't know how something's made, there's a magic to it, period. So if there's a something that's put into a space, it just, it's fun to make. It's fun to be like, oh, I haven't seen that like that before. That would be really neat. And then, yeah, maybe other people will feel that same way too. They're like, oh, that's really neat. And then it makes for something nice to be inside of. That is amazing. I want to get into the last, 
three questions here. And one of these questions I do for every guest in the show is going to be one that I think of on the spot. And it's a unique question for you. I already thought of that. And the first question I want to ask is, and this is probably going to be hard for you. What book do you recommend reading? And this is, doesn't have to be a business book by any means. It could be any kind of book. It's only one book. I knew it was going to be hard. You could do three. That's okay. Because you're, you read a lot. You read a lot. So I'll let you do three. Yeah. There's a book I'm reading right now that it's really cool. I'm really enjoying it. It's called The Baron and the Trees. B-A-R-O-N. The Baron and the Trees by Italo Calvino. He's an Italian author. I think he passed away in maybe the 60s or 70s. Or at least he was making a lot of work in the 60s and 50s. It's awesome. It's about a... It's about a boy that was in a castle. He's a baron. He's about to be, he's going to be the next king or whatever. And his parents do something to him and he gets pissed. So he just goes up in the trees in the backyard. And the thing is, there's so many trees in this area that he can travel miles just in the treetops. <laughs> and it's so fascinating. It's so fascinating. It's, it's really fun. And with what I'm learning right now in life, like this, just going back to what we talked about, we touched on a couple of times with just getting back in touch with that, what some people would call the pu'er energy versus the senic energy. So pu'er energy being that youthful energy, the senic energy being like, that's where the word cynical comes from. But there's also a wisdom there. There's like a wisdom there of, oh, this is the way, this is human nature. This is, but there's that pu'er energy of this. So for me, the bear in the trees is like, speaks to that and scratches that itch really well. I got that book for my birthday. And another book I would read is A Course in Miracles. A Course in Miracles, it was transcribed in the 1970s by a Columbia professor. My understanding is she was an atheist and she had some sort of divine interaction and she transcribed this book. She just felt these things coming to her and started writing it down. What came out is this spiritual text and it's super powerful. We're actually working with it for your patch for your project, Patrick. Wow. A Course in Miracles. There's different lines from it. There's so much power in it. It's one of the one of the things I read in there was all shallow roots must be uprooted. Right. So that is an entire podcast in and of itself. It's like, what does it mean? <laughs> What's what if you have really shallow relationships? Either make those deeper or pull it out. And maybe it's better to have less topical relationships. It's just there's so there's things like that in it that come up that are just so powerful. And there's an entire passage about a garden and a desert. That was one of the initial jump offs from that book for, for Project 33. So that's a really powerful book. It's a long read. I think it's 700 pages, but there's also available. There's kind of reader guides and stuff like that that are available, like little short and condensed versions of people's interpretation of it. So that's number two. And I would say number three would be... This may change tomorrow, by the way, this list, but number three would be The Agony and the Ecstasy. I don't remember who the author is, but it's about Michelangelo, and it's about mm. as close to a biogra biography as we can get, The Agony and the Ecstasy about Michelangelo. And I'm going to throw in, I'm actually going to throw in another one, and I would absolutely say Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill as Ooh, well. That's a good one, yeah. Yeah, Thinking Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill is huge. There's a reason so many people talk about it. There's a reason that people study it. One of my mentors, he teaches classes. It's a book club. They meet two times a week. Anybody who is interested in learning more about it, get in touch with me, david at terrorprojects.org. I'm happy to put you and Ernie in touch. He's a teacher. He happens to be a pretty prolific real estate investor. At this chapter in his life, he is a teacher. He loves it. And his goal is to move people from the 99% into the 1%. And his thinking is, can we, within America, take the 99% of people and give them the 1%? Like, what if we were to flip it? And that financial understanding, financial abundance was just the commonplace. And that's his goal. So he teaches these classes completely for free, no charge. You join the Zoom. He does it two times a week for three hours at each time. Think and Grow Rich, and then he also teaches from Robert Kiyosaki's Cashflow Quadrant, which is also another really good book. It talks about the four different 
Robert has four different ways that you can make money as an employee, an investor, a big business owner, or like a solopreneur or self-employed business owner. So I would say those are a pretty rounded out grouping. Maybe that was four or five. Uh, so. <laughs> all right. No, that's all good. And you have a holistic, you've probably read more books than I have in my life. So I'm, I'm just curious. older. That's all you're going to get. I love And books. there's people that have read way more than I. Yeah. So what does the future hold for David Irwin? <laughs> I Let's see. That's a great question. I don't know. I really don't know. What I do know is it's like the more I do things like get into do breath work courses or go to more meditation retreats is I sometimes I learn things about myself like very clearly I didn't know before. I'm like, whoa. And sometimes it's more of a slow burn. But what I do know is that I get more clear after these different experiences and the work benefits that I make, the drawings benefit, the ideas are more clear. I find that I have less judgments around people. I find I have more harmonious relationships. I find that, yeah, business gets better. I find deeper meaning in things I'm doing, very simple things. So that's like the truest thing I'm seeing at the moment. And to do these practices and to continue these practices, not just to do them every couple of years as we've been doing, but to really to see how I can work them into my everyday. So I see doing more of that and to, yeah, and to reap the benefits of it, of getting to know myself better. I think it was the Greek temple of Delphi written above it. This is thousands of years ago. It was know thyself. And this is a saying that every spiritual text says it. it. It probably says it in A Course in Miracles. And by the way, spiritual does not mean religious. It's really just your connection to something that you can't see that gives you solace that you feel it can be the feeling of love, this kind of divine feeling, maybe you call it God, but it's like when we spend time investigating that within ourselves and you know yourself better, I find that it benefits everybody around you. Uh, it benefits like business. It benefits if you're a real estate investor, the investing, if you're a contractor, it just, it benefits a lot of other people in a lot of different arms of your life. So I have no idea, man, what lays ahead, but I, but I think that, that's a long winded answer for, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But like that, that best I can tell it's going to be more of that and it's not comfortable, but I do see that, I guess, similar there, to a mindset. uncomfort in the unknown. You yeah. Know? Similar to the mindset that I know that you have when you're investing mm -hmm. and just doing what you do and it taking time to be perhaps to have things move at a clip, you want them to have certain goals met. It takes patience and I'm constantly learning that every day. And it's something I always wish I had more of, but it's cool because as time goes on, you realize that you can handle situations a little better, just a little bit better. And as Ernie McNabb says, it's the direction you're going. It's if you saved a dollar more than last month, amazing, because you're going in a good direction. Maybe the next month you save two bucks. Maybe then you save 10, 100, 1,000. Whoa. And then you invested like 10 bucks. You invested, oh my God, amazing, because you're moving in the right direction. So direction is a lot more important than like how big the steps are Magnitude. on the ladder that you're yeah, taking. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's awesome. So I think for David Irwin, it's just getting better, 1% one, 1 better every day in whatever capacity you can think of. I always like to take small steps, celebrate small wins. David, I got a special question for you. And you probably, I don't know if you thought this through already or you haven't, but I'm going to give you a situation and I want you to explain to everybody how you would handle this. So okay. opportunity comes your way, David, and you can create a city. The city has certain limitations, but financials are not one of them. You can actually do whatever you mm -hmm. please with the city. How would you develop this city to your liking? If you could just have the keys to just create a city from scratch, it could be futuristic. It could be whatever you want and whatever location you desire. What would that look like? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll say it this way. 
there's a quote attributed to Abraham Lincoln. And it goes something to the effect of, if I was asked to chop down a tree and I was given, say, a full day, an eight-hour day, I would spend six hours sharpening my axe and then two hours chopping it down. I would, I would really <laughs> I would give this one a think, give it a think <laughs> about how that would be. But what I can tell you is that there's, yeah, there, there's a lot there. Yeah, there's a lot there, man. For me, a thought that comes to mind is the axis mundi. What is the axis mundi? It's a Latin phrase you learn in architecture school. It talks about the center of a city or a town. It's not the center like geographically, but it's like what do people care about most? To give you an example, I'm here in beautiful Joshua Tree, California. What's the axis mundi? Interestingly enough, the retreat center, the Institute of Mental Physics, their main hall is the tallest building in all of Joshua Tree with its spire. So I would, and I think people would agree, like when you come to the desert, there's a really powerful feeling and it allows for people to do deeper spiritual work. If only coming out, you get a sound bath or something like that. Great. Or you live out here and there's other stuff that you're doing. And then this proves true, say in Manhattan, what's the tallest building? I believe it's the Freedom Tower now, which is office buildings. So business, commerce. If I'm not mistaken, New York was founded in the 1600s by the British, what was it, the, or the Dutch West India Company. It was founded by a company just talking about things being settled, like after Native Americans having lived here and these structures being built. So like this rings true in different areas. So I would really spend a lot of time contemplating what's the heart of this city? Like, what is it? I don't think it's going to be an office tower. However, it might be that there's some sort of spiritual hub or maybe it's some sort of family center because there's a lot of different ways you can approach it. I would definitely think about who's going to be there, where is it located, <laughs> who I want there. I think it would be, I, it's definitely not for me to say. I think it would be a pretty interesting thing of, I've never been to Burning Man. I don't necessarily plan to go, but I think there's an interesting notion about show up show up of course for that you got to buy a ticket and stuff so you got to be able to afford a ticket and show up but show up and then you're there there's not necessarily specifics of who can come and who can't so it would definitely be inclusive in that way but i think creating a space where people can really have their own independence as well as the sense of community is something that's quite striking about the desert and that's definitely a trait that i would I think needs to be in there Cities today, as I spoke to earlier, are, they offer much. However, there's also, it's clear now that there's much they do not offer. And the second part of that statement, it might be the most important stuff. So I think that there's a huge opportunity with being able to scratch that itch, to really have people's nervous systems be calm, to be able to have their gifts be a platform that people can practice their gifts, whether it be like being an author or perhaps it's about shepherding in these different spaces and having ownership around them, aka being a, a developer or a patron, right? Or being an artist, being an architect, being a sculptor. These are different notions that were, they're still alive all over the world. But in mainstream culture, what I've observed is that there's a, there's like this, I don't know, there's a, that's old. That's old. I'm here to say, and I think a lot of people would agree with me, that there's a lot of importance in speaking with elders that have wisdom. And I think we can look at past cultures the same way, that they're elder cultures that have a lot of wisdom. The last thing I'll say is live in Rome or Paris for a month and go to the same cafe as much as you can. You'll learn a lot about living that Americans, we don't necessarily have that because that's an elder culture that really knows what's up with just mm. quality of life. So I would definitely be pulling from my experiences in those different places uh, to really just do my best to like, where would I want to, like, what would be the, what would feel really good for me? And the last thing I'll say is, I don't know what it would look like, but there would need to be a kind of a force multiplier of partnering with different people as well 
that I feel like are energetically coming from a similar place, but also can have their own spin on, on things as well. But, and I, I encourage people to look up, there's a document, a short documentary just came out about the line, the project in Saudi Arabia, where they're creating a city. And Tom Main talks about it in that he talks about working with a team. Like you got to be able to work with a team to create something at the scale. And I remember a, there was a book signing that I was at and he talked about a certain point in his career. It turned into me versus, not versus, but me, it evolved into we and what was being created. Now you look at his work and his DNA is all over it, but there's a way he was able to galvanize the efforts of multiple people to come together to create these different projects that are super powerful and really thoughtful. And they're happening at all different scales from homes all the way up to the line over in Saudi Arabia. So that's the best I could definitely say at the moment. <laughs> that's pretty good for on the spot. <laughs> Not gonna lie. I know you have to think things through so you wouldn't have, have all the answers for this, but I like that approach. Cool, man. Honestly, for people that maybe resonated with your story or wanted to get in contact with you to potentially maybe even partner on a project, where can they reach out to you? Yeah. Email would be best. So David at Terra projects with an S dot org. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to chat and to talk about life. It's fun, man. Yeah. And if anybody wants to invest a lot of money and build something crazy, I'd love to be part of that with, especially if you're partnering with David Irwin, I would love to be part of that, but yeah, no, no need for it. We're still, we're all developing cool things. So I'm excited to to keep making this desert more and more beautiful and thoughtful with you, David. So appreciate you hopping on and sharing your story. You're very welcome. And thank <laughs> you for the opportunity, man. Of course. And the last thing I just want to part with, and I touched on it before, and it's something that just referencing the architect, Stephen Hall again, he said it as a lecture. I was sitting in a seat. I was probably like 18 or 19. And he said this, and I think it's so true be idealistic. So if you're a contractor, be idealistic. If you're an investor, be idealistic. If you're an artist, be idealistic. If you're an architect, be idealistic. That is so important. The way things come about, it will all fall into place. The right, the right everything will come into place. You'll perhaps have to get a little bit more education. You'll have to do X, Y, Z. That will become apparent. But it's so important that we start off being idealistic. Like what would be like the best case scenario here? And to really put your energy into that. And what I find is when you do, that's how these things can come about. So yeah, I've, that's, I think, good parting words for me. I do my best to be reminded from those words from Stephen Hall as frequently as I can. And I think they're super important. I'm glad you got a good closer because I don't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, David. I appreciate you, man. Take care. Likewise. All right. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Patrick Real Estate Show. If you found this episode helpful, please give us a follow and leave us a five-star review. Your support truly means a lot. And connect with Patrick in the show notes below. Until next time.